Hey, it's Craig. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to Canadian History X early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Greetings and welcome to another episode of Canadian History X. If you'd like to support the podcast, you can. Just go to patreon.com slash Canada EHX. You can support the podcast for as little as $3 a month. You can also donate to the podcast by going to CanadaEHX.com and clicking Donate. I do this full-time, and every dollar you give helps keep all of this going. You can also check out my other podcasts. I have From John to Justin, where I look at all the Prime Ministers in Canadian history, and Pucks and Cups, where I look at the history of hockey in Canada. All are on all podcast platforms. Today, I'm speaking with Bob Joseph the president of Indigenous Corporate Training Incorporated, and the author of several books, including 21 Things You May Not Have Known About the Indian Act. We talk about that book, we talk about the Indian Act, and we talk about reconciliation in the 21st century. So let's get right to it. I guess the first question, now the book was kind of inspired by an article that went a bit viral, but what inspired you to kind of put together this 21 Things that... Uh, people need to know essentially about the uh, the Indian Act? So I, I do these uh, Indigenous awareness programs. I've been doing them since 1994, largely for corporations and governments, all levels, federal, provincial, local. And um, the uh, that we spend in the awareness course, we spend most of our time talking about the Indian Act. And uh, it aids really in communications, you know, whenever you, whenever you uh, look at intercultural communications, whenever two cultures come together, if they have the same information sets in their head, mm -hmm. then the conversation can be pretty smooth. But if, they, if they're coming to the same conversation, but you have a different sense of history and I have a different sense of history and you do a lot of this work in your podcast, mm -hmm. uh, that just leaves room for all kinds of miscommunication and misunderstanding and and so um, part of bringing people to the same data sets is, is just understanding the Indian Act. And what I realized very early on was people just had no knowledge, like, you know, like your experience has been with, you know, certain aspects of uh, Canadian history. This was one of them. And we actually do a little uh, exercise at the start of uh, all of our sessions, you know, when we're face to face and I got a room full of people in front of me. I'll say, okay, I need you to think about, uh, think of a date in history that's specific to indigenous peoples and come up with just a really short sentence to describe it. And then depending on how much time we have, I may just flip chart their responses. Um, but if I have a lot of time, I'll actually get everybody to line up. Now I want you to line up chronologically, create a timeline in the room, and then each one of you will share your sentence of history. And what we find is there's lots of early dates, you know, the Royal Proclamation, the Royal, you know, the War of 1812, Christopher mm -hmm. Columbus, and lots of recent dates, Oka, Ipperwash, you know, those kinds of things, but there was always this gap in the middle of the timeline and it averages uh, about about a 70 year gap every time we do this exercise. And, uh, but, you know, and, and the 70 year gap is just, uh, you know, take the last date on the, on the early history and the, you know, the, the earliest date on, on the recent history and whatever that gap is, that's where we get that number. But what we found was just a lot of people just didn't have a lot of knowledge and so we spent a lot of time plunking in residential schools and, mm -hmm. you know, 
banning of hot latches and you know refusing to let people wear regalia in public and all of that was just Indian Act history and we just spent a you know in a three-hour session we'd spend you know an hour and a half just doing that and so as I was learning to be a blogger though um, I just finished reading a um, you know like a how to be a blogger blog post that said you know people like lists if you're looking for content and <laughs> you know, so you should write a list of something. And so I thought, well, what, what's my list? And I thought, what about the Indian Act? And I just quickly cranked down 21 things that they just top of mind, just sort of flowed out and uh, that I could recall people in the workshops how it would impact them. And so I quickly mm -hmm. typed it up and 21 things published. And in the first month, 55,000 people from <laughs> Facebook came to the website and then there was LinkedIn and Twitter mm -hmm. and you know, we had a newsletter subscriber list of 6,000 people in those days. And, and so, yeah, it was just a, it was like a huge hit. And we thought, hmm, this has really hit a nerve. I wonder, I wonder if, you know, books would be a way to get this out there. And so mm -hmm. I approached some uh, book people um, who were, they, they, they were ex-publishers, if that makes sense. So they used mm -hmm. to work for a big publishing house and have you know design covers and do that kind of stuff and I approached uh, those folks and I said hey I've got this idea for a book um, what do you think and they said you know this is incredible uh, most of the authors that we help get their books published um, have an idea for a story they want to tell but they don't know if it'll actually sell or people will be interested and and here you, you're coming to us with a <clears throat> an idea that they will buy and that they are interested in. Mm -hmm. So we think it'll do exactly what it did <laughs> online in bookstores. And, and so that's, that's what happened. It, and it has done that, you know, it's been mm -hmm. on the CBC bestsellers list and the Toronto star, and it just keeps coming off and on. And yeah, it's been pretty cool. <laughs> awesome. Pretty cool. So I'm a, I'm a best-selling author for a book about the Indian Act. Think about that for a second, yeah. right? <laughs> it's nice to be able to add that to your name, best-selling author for sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, yeah, that, 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 you know, that's just sort of that vanity stuff. It's really the look about the Indian Act. Come on, you know. Yeah, no, you know, absolutely. Twenty years ago, somebody said, "Why don't you write a book about the Indian Act?" I think it'll be a bestseller. You know, probably, <laughs> probably would have said, "What?" You know. <laughs> um, in regards to the Indian Act, uh, like, like I know about various things about it because essentially what I do is history and. I focus a lot on Indigenous, but a lot of Canadians probably don't even know what the Indian Act is or have maybe even never even heard of it, even though it's been part of our history for 150 years, roughly. Uh, why do you feel mm -hmm. most Canadians don't know enough about the Indian Act? Like a lot of the uh, conversations that you have, they just weren't taught it in schools, right? They just, it's just for some reason, not not made the curriculum, maybe, you know, I, I you know, not a, not an academic, I don't know what gets to pass for, you know, educating our kids these days. So um, I did begin to notice early on though, where, you know, when I was in, in uh, grade school or, or high school, you know, people would be asking me questions, teachers would be asking me questions, well, what about this and what about that? And, you know, things like status and non-status and fishing and hunting rights. And, you know, the, the questions as I grew older got more political, you know, like why do we have to deal with land claims and, you know, that kind of stuff. And and I just, you know, I started to realize there just a, there's just a big gap. And when I started doing the work for the company that I was working for way back in 1994, 
um, I can remember like one of the early sessions starting to talk about the Indian Act and talking about residential schools and how churches and governments and the police were all working together to take kids away from the age of six to 16 and put them into these church run government funded residential schools that really weren't for anybody else's kids and in essence were segregated schools and and uh, they were designed to forcibly culturally assimilate and and it was uh, I was doing one of those workshops in the morning <clears throat> and on the uh, coffee break a lady came up to me she had tears streaming down her face and, and I said what what's wrong and she said I you know I honestly I, I can't believe anything you're saying there, there's no way my church would have been involved in that and so I realized, wow, people just, they don't know about this. You know, I've, I've sort of lived it every day. It's a birth to death document as a status Indian. And I, I was, I was intimate with, with what was in it and how it impacted personally, but she just had no idea. And, and for her, it was just unbelievable, like literally unbelievable. And so I said, you know, I, I understand how you feel. <clears throat> and if you, if you, you know, you're welcome to leave. You know, as long as he assigned the sign-in sheet, I, I won't be able to tell the employer who was there or not there. They all signed the sign-in sheet. And, but you're also welcome to stay. And I think you're going to learn a lot more about this. I was sort of, you know, foreshadowing the Truth and Reconciliation Commission on residential schools and, and all that kind of stuff. So, yeah, it, it, it was just something that was just largely left out. And, mm -hmm. and I was beginning to uh, earn a living explaining to people history that had been left out, which was important, I think. Absolutely. Uh, over the course of my own life, uh, I know when I was going to school, uh, we would think nothing of in, in history books saying, you know, Indian, th uh, things like that. Uh, when I look at old history books, there's a lot of other words like half breeds and stuff like that. And this is from the eighties that they would write this, which is just shocking. Um, and then uh, as I get into journalism, we're starting to use words like indigenous. Uh, the Edmonton Eskimos are <clears throat> changing their name. We're seeing yeah. Johnny McDonald in a new light. So do you feel like truth and reconciliation is, <laughs> is going far enough at this point? Like what more uh, do you feel that we should be doing to kind of deal with these things that happened in the past that were terrible things that many, it was like you said, uh, churches, our leaders, uh, even just our ancestors, uh, especially like mine uh, coming from England uh, did as they, mm -hmm. as they came over. I think that's the, uh, just to keep doing what we're doing, to keep learning, you know, the work that you're doing in the podcast with lots of your indigenous content, helping helping non-Indigenous peoples and all of the calls to action allude to that. They say we should learn about the history and the culture and the United Nations Declaration and those things. So I think if uh, Canadians continue to do that, we see schools have uh, decolonized or are in the process of decolonizing their their curriculum and indigenizing it. We're still having little hiccups. There was a school in, uh, I think it was Abbotsford or, you know, Chilliwack on, on the lower mainland where the teacher, you know, sent the kids home with an assignment that said, tell me five good things about residential schools, five positive <laughs> things. So there's still a, still a little bit of a denial out there. And, um, and I think, you know, just as people learn that history and, and reconcile it, that's what reconciliation is all about. This is who we were in the past. It's not who we are right now. And we certainly won't be that way in the future, but you know, so I'm always telling people just we've got to we've got to we've got to acknowledge and remember the past, live in the now, but really set our set our communities up for 
Um, there's a very common principle in Indigenous communities called the seventh generation principle. Our kids, 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 kids still should be here doing, you know, what they think is important and feel safe. And, and uh, so that, that's where we uh, try to put the focus on in terms of uh, reconciliation. There's 94 calls to action. And if people go and find the truth and reconciliation calls to action, just Google that and see, you know, take a look at all of the different calls and find the one that's applicable to you and where you work, because there's one for everybody. I think doing that will set up, we're setting up for the future. It's not to make people feel guilty or bad or shameful or, you know, that, that doesn't, in, in, in and of itself, it doesn't do anything. It doesn't change society. And, and, but, but to really learn about it and say, okay, we, we acknowledge, and we have Prime Minister Stephen Harper, a conservative prime minister in the House of Commons, apologize to the Indian, Inuit and Métis peoples. And, and so, you know, we've done, we've done a lot of uh, great work. And I think it's important work when we look at it in the context of say other conflicts in the world that have not really gone through a process like this. I think of thinking about Palestine and Israel and, uh, you know, the, the relationship that they've had for 2000 years, like two millennia, you know, where, where, nothing like this has been there to help bring people together after conflict. I think of the, you know, Black Lives Matters. If you start to, in accounting, there's that expression, follow the trail of money, right? You know, people <laughs> say, follow the trail of money. Black Lives Matters, you follow the trail of events that lead us to it. It's a civil war, mm -hmm. right? So we can, we can go at this and we can let the haters, you know, lead us in a direction but here's here's the results after 150 years or 2000 years and so reconciliation is such an important piece and and i you know personally i, I would feel more comfortable if we left reconciliation to uh, individuals individual canadians take this on as opposed to the politicians who just get pouty when they don't get their way and i'm talking about all all kinds of all of our side there's not it doesn't matter how do you the reconciliation's dead you know and yeah no no it's not you know give this country about 15 years because the teachers are actively engaged and that'll be the first full cycle of kids through it'll be a completely different country our kids will be way more equipped to deal with you know the history and the culture and and to you know see a much better future i think it'll be pretty awesome and like you were saying you know we are going to go through some changes indian mm -hmm. a very homogenous term the indian act talks about indians but when you look at indigenous peoples um, and what that means there's over 600 different communities across the country and mm -hmm. you know 11 major language families broken up into over 50 different dialects that are as different as spanish is to japanese so you've mm -hmm. got this homogenizing document the Indian Act talking about Indians who are just such a, a culturally diverse group of people. So people will ask me questions, Bob, just, just tell me what they want, you know, tell me what Indians want. And, you know, if I knew what they want, I could maybe make some changes and help out and, and get involved in, in the cause. And I, I would say, well, first of all, tell me who they is, which, which group are you talking about? Because mm. it would be like, uh, it would like be, it'd be like going to a, a German person and saying, what do Europeans want? Yeah. You know, it's, that, it's that same dynamic, you know, you're going to, mm -hmm. you know, the Germans will say one thing and the Russians will say another. And you know what I mean? Like, yeah, absolutely. They'll be supportive. They'll be against, they won't care. You know, all of those, all of those are acceptable ideas, but the Indian act is really homogenizing. Now, having said that just on the terminology part of your question, some, 
people are totally proud to still be Indians. Hey, man, I'm an Indian. That's what I am. Call me that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So you, if you're having a personal relationship and somebody says, yeah, I'm, hey, I'm such and such an Indian, well, nice to meet you. I have personal hangups with saying Indian, but they don't. And yeah. if they did, they would change it. And so if, if they want me to call them that, that's what I'll call them. And I, that's my advice to people, just go with what they're calling themselves. And if they're mm-hmm. using that term, then you should use it. Um, you might have, you know, let's say we're at a conference, there's no pandemic, you and I are out shaking hands, kissing babies at some conference in, in you know, some big city um, in Alberta, and somebody comes up and says, hey, I'm Bob, and I'm such and such an Indian, and then like two seconds later, another person comes up and says, hey, I'm, I'm Sheila, and I'm such and such a First Nation. Okay, so which term do you go with? You know, what do I do in that situation? <laughs> Like it really is a no-win situation. You know, you're gonna somebody man using yes. a term. And in, in that situation, I would say, well, you know, in that situation, I would say, wow, it's so good to see so many communities represented here or so many mm-hmm. nations represented here, depending on on the effect of my communication. So some some indigenous peoples are comfortable being called Indians and others are deeply offended and want to be called first nations or some of them drop the first and just be called nations and some of them drop the s and just want to be a first nation and and uh, and my and actually when i do my training workshops and i'll say if you ever want to know if you're like if you're going to go meet with somebody the blackfoot or the cree or the mm-hmm. lubicon or whoever that is just call the band office you know star 67 so they can't see your phone number and call the band office after hours and listen to the recorded message right mm-hmm. you've reached the penticton indian band office you've reached the soyuz indian band office you've reached west bank first nation office and they'll be telling you the term that they prefer which is interesting because those three groups that i just mentioned belong to the same political organization called the okanagan nation alliance and so mm-hmm. they're following the rule and sharing with you which is <laughs> with what they're calling themselves and you won't get into any trouble and just have some you know communities a nice generic wiggle room word mm-hmm. where you can just use that instead of having a well are they indigenous or indian or you know any of that kind of stuff so that's how we try to help people some of the terminology like you say has aged well and others yeah getting a little bit uh, getting a little bit right as the years go on you know mm-hmm. i was i was watching a james bond film last night and, and uh, you know it's like diamonds are forever or something like that and and uh, one of the things that he does is he actually uh, slaps a woman in the face for not listening to him. And I'm like, whoa, this one didn't age well at all. I'm surprised they even let us play that today, you know, mm-hmm. but, uh, you know, just so. So that's, uh, those are some key terms. Indigenous peoples, a blanket term that you could use to describe all of the peoples in Canada, the Métis and the Indian and the uh, Inuit um, as Aboriginal peoples is our actual constitutionally correct terminology towards together us on the end. Mm-hmm. Indigenous peoples is like an international term it comes from the United Nations and the United Nations Declaration is a, is a declaration that is designed to help the over 350 million Indigenous peoples around the globe in Latin America or America or Canada or you know any of the other continents where there certainly are indigenous peoples we've we've kind of moved to uh, indigenous peoples um, when we're talking politically but if there's a court case about a pipeline then the terminology becomes aboriginal peoples because that's how they will fight the legal battle you know around whether we've consulted adequately and meaningfully or not 
So there you go. Just a few little tidbits. (laughs) A lot of of terms to remember. And I think for me, it's uh, in journalism, they really pushed on us uh, indigenous. And so that's why in the podcast, I usually always say indigenous. Uh, Unless I'm talking about a specific uh, uh, nation, like like you said, Blackfoot or Cree or uh, something like that. Yeah, yeah. It's funny, you know, uh, thinking about the when we made the shift, it was the 2016 election. If you go back, everybody, you can YouTube the the victory speech from the 2016 election. About 15 minutes in, you've got this new prime minister, Justin Trudeau, saying, I want to strengthen the nation-to-nation relationship with indigenous peoples. And as soon as he said that, I looked at my wife, who's a, a lawyer by background, and I said, wow somebody at the Department of Justice just crapped a brick because, man, I mean, that's such a big departure from Aboriginal peoples versus Indigenous peoples. Now, you know, because we're using that term, we're going to have to go get their consent to build these big pipelines and these mines and these forest operations where Canadian law takes a much narrower interpretation. They can't veto consultation. And so for him to use indigenous peoples in the victory speech, yeah, somebody in DOJ just, they actually fell off a chair. They're, they're crawling <laughs> towards the phone. They're, they're speed dialing the prime minister's office to try to get first legal briefing to say, can we talk to you about the terminology piece? Because it's such an important part of Canadian identity and the legal framework that good stuff yeah so there you go <laughs> um, is there any specific fact within the 21 that you feel like that's the most important that people need to know one that if you had to just tell one person one fact like that's the one you want them to know yeah uh my favorite one that's a tough one because they're all so interrelated right that they um they, they really connect and having them all together obviously gives you a better picture but I think the one that was uh, most important for me, and I do, I do a little bit of, um, you know, just trying to get people to understand some of the ideas that they have, right? <clears throat> um, um, would be, um, gosh, let me just see. Uh, it would be around sale and barter of produce and that kind of stuff off of reserves that the, the um, you know, that they weren't able to sell stuff that they had to get written permission to sell just anything mm-hmm. and I and that was important for me to understand because when I was growing up <clears throat> by the time I got into high school and those kinds of things people were were you know starting to share ideas with me about laziness you guys are lazy why don't you just do what I did and pick yourself up and pull up your bootstraps and and get on with it but um what I realized with that one was that it wasn't that we were lazy it's that we were forced out of the economy that Canada didn't want us to be participating on an equal footing and uh and they wanted reserves to be a really sort of desolate place this is part of the assimilation policy and the thinking you know, if we allow them to build a casino and if we allow them to build a hotel and restaurants and golf courses and residential real estate and all that kind of stuff, if we allow them to do that, then they're not going to want to assimilate. And so understanding that little piece, I think, probably has the largest impact in terms of our work with, uh, you know, 
non-indigenous peoples trying to understand and they can go huh i always thought they were just lazy but you know look looking back at it you can see why they've not fared as well as other people in the economy and and uh, that it isn't just a a simple thing as pulling up your bootstrap that there's been this whole legislative sort of indian act that's been designed and tried to force them off the reserve and it didn't didn't work so i hope that one helps you there it does uh what's the response to the book been like um, really good, really good. Um, I just did a thing with the West Vancouver Public Library and then a follow-up one with the Whistler, you know, Pemberton Library just to talk about 21 things. And uh, they they had, uh, like we're doing a Zoom session and, you know, they, they've sold out. They're not even selling them, but, you know, they're just offering as a service for their readers and their patrons and, you know, 500 registrations for each one of those. And people wondering if there'll be more and yeah so um and that that's been pretty uh, indicative of the book it just keeps tracking along and i really hope that it contributes to canadians saying okay enough's enough we got to get rid of this thing and let's mm-hmm. move to uh, to a better place and and so still you know in the grand scheme of communication still in the awareness building phase and then we'll start to look for ideas and action plans and yeah. So, and people are, when, when we're doing, um, we do, uh, you know, webinars like that all the time. People are saying, what can we do? Um, and I'll say, you know, talk to your, talk to your members of parliament, tell them to keep this on the agenda. Why do we still have an Indian act? You know, what's happening with governance and keep pushing for the declaration, all of those kinds of things. That's our, you know, those are our calls to action and to learn about it for themselves. That's really going to be the most helpful piece right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, and kind of in relation to that, excuse me, kind of in relation to that, what do you hope people get from reading that book? And especially people who aren't familiar with it. Uh, someone say that's walking through the library or the bookstore and sees it and goes, oh, okay, I'm going to pick this up. I'm going to read it. Coming in completely blind to the Indian Act. Yeah. Well, I, I hope that they're able to look at it, you know, pragmatically and not feel guilty or shame or anything because largely they haven't had anything to do with it um and uh you know we i'm you know talking to you from my office here today and when we first met our landlord he said what do you do for a living he's trying to figure out if i can pay the rent i'm sure um, you know i said well i you know i have a training business i write books and you know, and uh, he said, well, really, what do you, what do you write? And so I had a copy right near me and I said, here, have a read. And he went away and he came back and he said, oh gosh, I read, I read your book. Oh, he said, I'm, I, I just, you know, uh, I just, I'm, I mean, it just made me so angry. You know, he just got worked right up. And I said, you want to read the next book in the piece? It's uh, called, you know, Indigenous, Indigenous Relations, what you can do. But he said, no, no, it's just too disturbing. It's too much. And, and uh, you know, so I, there, there, there's, uh, you know, that would be a, a rarity in that reaction. If you, if you go into our uh, social media, you know, you know, at WeWAP or, Facebook or LinkedIn, people are like, I got a copy and I bought three copies and shared them with my family. And, you know, so that, that those, that's pretty cool reaction that people are just talking about it. And, you know, in Ontario, when reconciliation first came on, Ontario said, we're not going to fund reconciliation education. And uh, 
So the teachers right away, you know, latched onto the book and did a, well, we're going to do a whole month of 21 thing Twitter chats and we're going to share ideas and get to understand it. And, and we're also going to uh, implement, you know, whether or not we get funding or not. So that was, you know, that was pretty good for the soul to, to hear that the teachers felt strongly enough about it, that they would pick up the torch and run with it, even though politically it wasn't going to get funded by that province. So I think, you know, there's just been a great reaction that way. And it's just every day, you know, something new, somebody talking about how much it's impacted them and, and uh, you know, sharing, sharing copies. So it's been pretty neat. And really neat. Uh, and like I say, it's a book about the Indian Act, you know, <laughs> which, uh, come on now, you know, yeah, I think I'll write a book about the Indian Act to become a best-selling author. You know? <laughs> if I would have done that two years ago, right? <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> um, within the book, uh, you and, uh, and you touched on it a little bit in your answers, but you mentioned the Indigenous stepping out from the Indian Act, and that can be better not only for uh, the various nations within Canada, but for Canadians in Canada itself. So can you elaborate a bit on, on uh, what you mean with uh, why it could be best for, for the entire country? For sure, for sure. So um, the, um, it is, it, it'll be a good shift because one of the things about the Indian Act, if we think about before Confederation, when we think about Indigenous peoples in Canada before Confederation, a lot of the comments that you would have read about them would have been very complimentary, you know, like from explorers. I mean, these are some of the most self-reliant, hardworking, you know, people that I've ever met. These, these, they're just so self-sufficient, self-reliant, and you know, they're so organized. And and uh, but then along comes this Indian Act and has created this total dependency relationship. So we fund. Indian Affairs and the 600 bands, and we're always way behind on, you know, education and clean drinking water and housing, adequate housing and those kinds of things, right? And it just costs um, taxpayers so much money to keep this relationship going. Now, they can't just get rid of it because way back in 1867, the federal government took on the fiduciary duty to look after Indians and lands reserved for Indians. So it's actually a trustee wordship relationship. And if we want to get rid of it, we have to do some kind of constitutional amendment or some kind of constitutional accord. And um, that, is, that would be a way, hey, vote for me and I'll, you know, we'll, we'll take section 9124 out of the British North America Act and we'll tweak section... You know what? Indigenous issues aren't big enough to risk a breakup of the country. Right now, if we opened up the Constitution to debate amongst all the members in, in Confederation, some of them may not want to be here, some close to us and some, you know, Quebec and others like that. So that is just not a really workable option. And the workable option is to then say, well, what about negotiation? Can we negotiate a new relationship with Indigenous peoples? And and that is totally doable. And there's already self-government agreements out there where people mm -hmm. can become self-governing. Because the Indian Act, remember, if you look at the 21 things, it'll say imposed an elected chief and council system. So the Blackfoot and the Cree were already self-governing before contact. And along comes the government and says, hey, Craig, the way you're doing this, it's wrong. It's backwards. You should elect a chief and council. And it was a direct attempt to overthrow the traditional leaders and 
and and we only give them a two-year cycle right mm -hmm. so now they've only got two years um to to do anything uh which is really tough you know we have we struggle with four-year terms in society at large as it were and they're they're getting two years you're allowed a chief and council member for every hundred people so if you've got 205 members you get one chief and one council member um, you're elected by your people, but you're accountable to Indian affairs. And that's the problem with the Indian Act. And mm -hmm. it's not designed to make them self-sufficient, self-reliant or any of that. It was designed to actually force them off the reserves. That's what Canada wanted to see happen. They eventually would become like everybody else. There'd yeah. be no special fishing rights, no hunting rights, none of that. No need to do new treaties, no need to honor historic treaties. None of this pipeline debate would have happened if the Indian Act was successful. But the problem was it didn't work and now it's costing us money to maintain this historic relationship so way back in 1995 the vancouver sun ran an article indian land claims could cost taxpayers 10 billion dollars and it was a great article and i was off to do a session with some power line technicians and uh, i thought oh man it's going to be a tough day in the office <laughs> here's the front page of the vancouver sun and i better take this with me we got there and somebody said hey bob even if i thought this was a right thing to do i don't think it is there's a debt and the debt's out and the economy's in the tailspin and you know today they would throw the pandemic in that would be the only change and we just spent 400 billion on the pandemic you know how, how, how do you expect us to pay you right and there'd be a lot of that vitriolic anger pitchfork and shovel crowd and, and so i said you know it's a great it's a great question we should talk about it and i pulled out the article and it said the province would transfer five billion in cash no the province would transfer five billion in lands re in resources in accordance with its you know constitutional powers and the feds would transfer five billion in cash over this 20-year estimated negotiating period and uh so I said, it's a lot of money. Can't imagine what it would look like one toonie stacked up on top of the other. And, you know, I, I, I would be concerned if I was a taxpayer, I, I would be concerned. I am a taxpayer, just for the record. Uh, I would be concerned. But um, I said, the problem with this article for you taxpayers is it talks to you about the cost of change. And what it doesn't talk to you about is the cost of not changing. And I think you'd need that piece of the story, that piece of information, so you can make an informed decision. I really don't care what you want to do. It's up to you. I'm going to leave that power with you. But just know, if you don't want to do this treaty process, then here's what it's going to cost you. We continue with the Indian Act because Canada has the fiduciary duty. And that's, that's uh, you know, 800 and 50 million to a billion dollars a year in federal funding transfers to the 206 bands in BC. Let's just call it a billion. Let's just be mm -hmm. conservative and realistic. A billion dollars a year. Um, if we don't, so that that continues, right? That's something that continues because we got this legal obligation going all the way back to Confederation for something that didn't work. Um, we all know who's paying to represent the Queen's interests in any rights or titles cases that, you know, Trans Mountain and Coastal Gas Link and, you know, some of those sites see and the big conversations we've been having. That, that is costing you a whack load of money to prove you're right. Like the wet Sowetan one alone, it's got to be in the 20 to $25 billion cost because we didn't consult with the hereditary chiefs. We only consulted with the elected councils and that, that whole, that whole sort of, you know, mess that came out of that. So it's a, it's a $4 billion pipeline that probably took 20 to 25 billion to build. If you go by what, um, there's been a study recently about what the Dakota Access Pipeline conversation cost, and it was in the $28 billion range because of the blockades and the mm -hmm. slowdown in the economy and construction and, 
just all of those costs just continue to soar. Um, but yeah, the Queen's interest, you know, plus the project's lay fees for any of those legal cases, the treaty process itself cost BC, so far has cost BC $2 billion. And if we, you know, vote for me and I'll get rid of the treaty process, then we walked away from a $2 billion investment. And that's a good decision if that's what you want. You know, all fair, all's fair. Um, but the other one, the, uh, the government of the day way back in the early 1990s, an NDP government that a commissioned uh, the firm Price Waterhouse Coopers, very reputable accounting firm in those days, and uh, said, what's the economic impact of leaving all of this unresolved, you know, land claims and self-government and the Indian Act, what's the economic impact on BC's economy? And they only looked at forestry and mining in British Columbia in the early 90s with this firm Price Waterhouse Coopers study. They came back and said, okay, we're losing 1,500 jobs a year plus about a billion dollars of direct investment. So it's the direct investment that was a fairly substantial number a, a year, not, not mm. over the 20 years that's been going on now, but a year. So yes, $10 billion is a lot of money. I can't imagine what it would look like one tuning stacked up on top of the other. But if that's what makes your world go around, if that's your real mojo, you want to drape yourself in the Canadian flag and as a taxpayer, you know, have the taxpayer hat on, then you should just know we could self-finance a $10 billion treaty process in five years by getting rid of the federal funding for the Indian Act and the economic uncertainty. Take you less than five years to pay for the change. And I think that's a good investment. Um, you know, not a rocket surgeon that way, but you know, it, it is definitely costing Canadians more to leave things the way they are. And we saw the price for, you know, some of the big infrastructure projects. And now we're going to come out of a pandemic and we're going to try and force, you know, a lot of development really quickly because governments are going to be cash strapped trying to pay off their pandemic billions of spending. Right. And so, you know, we're coming into another perfect storm and hopefully if we work it well with indigenous peoples, you know, involve them in the decision-making process, even going as far as saying, what would you be willing to do and not do, which is what the big hubbub is on all that stuff is the consent piece. If we can get their consent, we don't have to deal with blockades and negative media campaigns and shareholder scrambling and, you know, everything, everything changes. So it really is going to be a different a different mindset than the one that we maybe went into all of that big infrastructure where yes we can use the law to push these projects through and tmx is going to be built but at what cost mm -hmm. and i i will tell you you know we're subsidizing those those pipelines heavily when you start to factor in the port blockades and the railway blockades the solidarity stuff that that's where the real money is being lost to the economy so that's why i say it's not just a $4 billion pipeline, it's actually a 20, $24 billion pipeline. Absolutely. So I think we'll be better off. All of that's to say that <laughs> there, is another, all of, there is another way to do this and <laughs> we, just, we just need more information. And I think that's where the reconciliation can help Canadians really understand that piece. Without a doubt. Uh, and then the last question is, where can people find the book? Where they can get in touch with you? Uh, where are you on social media? All, all those things. Ah, yes. A little bit of shameless marketing. Thank you. <laughs> uh, <laughs> chapters, Indigo, uh, you know, that that's the best place to go and and uh, get those books. Uh, there's uh, e-versions. We also, um, you know, um, we've got some audio book 
arrangements where you can buy the audio version and drive in your car and listen. Um, we're, uh, Twitter is at WeWAP, W-E-W-A-P, and that is, that's a throwback to terminology, working effectively with Aboriginal peoples. Now it would be be with working effectively with indigenous peoples which kind of kind of sounds weird not yeah. sure that we want that we whip, as a we whip, I guess. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so who exactly do you whip bob <laughs> you know so we, we've just kept it at we on twitter and then facebook and linkedin uh you know we've got company pages and digitous corporate training and and group pages working effectively with with indigenous peoples um we also have a you know www.ictinc.ca is our website we've got over a thousand blog posts with videos and free ebooks on terminology and what to say and not say and and we we are in lots of uh, great conversations how to do protocol and why to do protocol and um you know, but, you know we've commented on Johnny mcdonald and all of all of the all of the really uh, important issues you, you know there's so there's some great free resources in the new year we're going to have we have a free indigenous awareness course that people can take but we've pulled it down for right now because we're about to change the url of our uh, website which is actually a more complicated process and complicated because we got a, we got like a thousand people in our in our learning portal and if we change the url they'll all get lost and so we're trying to do that in a way that they don't all get lost trying to get back to the courses that they've either paid for or are taking for free and and so yeah so there's lots of uh, ways that people can continue their learning journey whether they can pay or not pay we don't you know We've got a great corporate and government clientele, and uh, they they help sort of keep our business going. Which you know was the reason for blogging. Was now we can help people that maybe don't have resources to bring in a you know a trainer who can help them you know through each step of the way and that kind of stuff. So, I hope you enjoyed that interview with Bob Joseph. If you did, please leave a rating and review. If you want to reach me, you can just go to Craig at CanadaEHX.com. You can also visit my website where you'll find hundreds of articles on Canada's history, as well as all my podcast episodes. Just go to CanadaEHX.com. In addition, you can support the podcast like I said. Just go to Patreon.com slash CanadaEHX. Just like all of these wonderful patrons have. Phil Maynard, Pamela Elder, Shannon Marshall, Clinton Martinez, Dimitri Chauve, Aaron O'Hara Myers, Robert Dunseith, Todd Casey, Catherine Rois, Luke S., Vic Hedges, J.P. Bear, Jason Hall, Spencer M., and Iris Gray. You can find us on Facebook. Just go to facebook.com slash CanadianHistoryX. You can find me on Twitter. My handle is Craig Baird, C-R-A-I-G-B-A-I-R-D. And you can find me on Instagram. Just search for Bairdo37. Thanks. We'll see you again next time.